Hello, everyone. This is composer Richard Wargo. Welcome to the Music Shop. Welcome to Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla, Chorus Director and Associate Conductor at Vancouver Opera. Join me for this podcast as we connect with opera experts, artists, staff, and others to explore the world of opera on and off the stage. We are honored to share our stories on the unceded homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Good afternoon, and welcome to the podcast. This is, in fact, the 25th episode of Vancouver Opera Offstage, and I am so delighted and thrilled and honored to be speaking with Richard Wargo, the composer and librettist of The Music Shop, Vancouver Opera's next digital offering, which will be going live on March 13th. This episode is also the official pre-show for The Music Shop. I'm talking to Richard for the first time. He's at his home in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I am so delighted to welcome you to the program. Richard, welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me today. We are thrilled to be talking to you. Since our last correspondence, we did get confirmation from your publisher, Shermer, that this production will, in fact, be the Canadian premiere of The Music Shop. So we're really honored and excited about that as well. Oh, me as well. There's obviously so many things we could talk about, but I'd love to start with The Music Shop. And I know that this is part of a trilogy, the Chekhov trilogy, which you composed in 1993. And again, you're very rare in being both composer and librettist for all of your works, I believe. I would love to invite you to talk about your impetus for writing this, the inspiration, how your ideas germinate, and then how you set them down on paper. Sure. Interestingly, the whole impetus for the Chekhov trilogy, consider when you're in your 20s and you're venturing to write opera, there's a certain practicality that has to enter the equation, I think. So I had long been an admirer of Chekhov. Not only his plays, but also his short stories, a lot of the short comedies that he wrote under the pen name Chaconte. And so I thought the idea of, if I were to set out to write a trilogy, it would give me an opportunity to try to write a comedy, a lyric drama, and then a musical farce for a small cast. And it would be a chance to learn, to grow, to see something on the stage. It's so easy for someone to sit down and try to write a grand opera, but how can you learn? if you can't hear it and experience it. So that was the thinking I had in setting out to write the trilogy. And this was when I was in the middle of an orchestra job. I was production assistant for the Northeast Pennsylvania Philharmonic and writing a large commissioned work for four singers and orchestra with a deadline looming. And some friends said, come on, you need to get away from your deadline. Come to the theater, the Scranton Public Theater, for a production of a play, The Good Doctor by Neil Simon. It never occurred to me that Neil Simon was inspired by Chekhov as well and wrote this piece, The Good Doctor, vignettes based on different Chekhov stories. And, you know, you can't take me anywhere. By the end of the first act, instead of forgetting about music, I'm thinking, boy, this segment is really sounding to me and looking to me like an opera. The segment was called The Seduction, and it was based on a Chekhov story called The Boa Constrictor and Rabbit. And it was a delightful comedy of manners in which a young woman becomes totally enthralled 
by a friend of her husband. And the means that this Don Giovanni attracts this young woman to him is to totally ignore her, to show no interest whatever in her, but instead to, little by little, send praises through her husband, to flatter her through her husband, but always telling him, please don't repeat a word of this to your wife. And so over the course of, in Neil Simon's version, short little playlet, in my version in opera, this woman becomes totally infatuated by this stranger elements of Don Giovanni or comic Anna Karenina, if you will, but all very scaled back and small. So again, by the end of the night, I said, I have to write to Neil Simon and try to get these rights. It took a while, but I did eventually get his permission to write this piece. And around this time, the National Institute for Music Theater was taking applications for their festival at New York City Center. They picked up the work to do in their small theater underneath there, I was really fortunate as a young composer to have an opportunity not only to see and experience the first part of my trilogy, but also, most importantly, to be introduced to what was to become a longtime collaborator in Dorothy Danner, the stage director. We are just great friends, and she's the type of support that any composer would be lucky to have. Someone who's creative and challenges you, but is also supportive. And that's difficult to find, and she's directed all of my operas since, so... I've been very fortunate in that. And the baritone, David Barron, he was in a number of works. He was in that original production. The soprano, Sharon Daniels, was a delight to work with. So that was a wonderful launch for me as a young composer for the trilogy to have this production. And right at the same time as I had just completed The Seduction of a Lady, which is what the introduction to a Chekhov trilogy is called, The Curtain Raiser, when I got a contact from the Midwest Opera Theater, this is the touring branch of Minnesota Opera, and they were looking for an opera that they could tour the schools with. And we're looking to commission a new work. Well, of course, the third part of the trilogy that I was looking to write, I never thought of it as a children's opera or a kid's opera, but to be honest with you, it's done quite often in schools. So I proposed Music Shop for their commissioned work, and they were happy to invite me to come to St. Paul to write the work. That was a wonderful experience in and of itself. Very talented director, Gary Briggle, also ended up taking over the role of Yvonne, and it was a great opportunity. We had our premiere the very north of Minnesota in a little town called Crookston, and it was a little bit daunting because here Music Shop came in at around an hour at that time, and I realized I had my work cut out for me, that I had to scale it back. Luckily, I had an opportunity because shortly after that, Miami Opera had contacted me as well. They were interested in commissioning the second part of the trilogy, which was to become a lyric cherry orchard type inspired drama called A Visit to the Country, based on a story called A Visit to Friends, based on it also Verachka, another story of Chekhov's. And so here I had an opportunity to have all three pieces done. And then enter the picture, Linda Jackson from Chautauqua Opera. I'm eternally grateful to her for taking on the entire trilogy. First in 1990 at Chautauqua Opera in a production with piano, and then in a production with orchestra in 1993 with John DeMaine conducting. After that, Gary Briggle did the actual first production of Music Shop. Then beyond that, in Miami and at Chautauqua, Dorothy Danner was the director for those as well. So it was just a great experience to have finally uh, the vision of these three short works realized 
It's such a beautiful setting at Chautauqua Opera. I didn't know John DeMade was involved with the work. He came up here in 2010, the year we hosted the Winter Olympics, and he conducted a brand new production of John Adams Nixon in China that we did. And the director for that show, a Canadian by the name of Michael Cavanaugh, was actually my guest on the last episode of this program. And he has recently been named as the new incoming artistic director of the Royal Swedish Opera. The world is amazingly small when we get to talk. It really, truly is. So it strikes me, it's quite amazing that you had already been thinking about Chekhov before you'd written a note, and then your friends dragged you off to the theater, and lo and behold, you had no idea that this was going to be a Chekhov-based play that you saw, the Neil Simon. No, and you know, that's often the case. I find people ask how you're inspired to write a particular work. I can go through book after book and spend days in the library searching for source material. More often than not, it's something you see, something you hear, something you experience that gives that spark, that compels you to spend years writing a particular opera. That's how it works. Not to digress too much, but a play that I saw as a senior in high school, Brian Frill's Winners from his play Lovers. It just haunted me for years until finally I picked up a pen and paper and wrote to Brian Friel in Donegal, Ireland, saying, can I turn your play into an opera? So it's things that you see, things that you experience that I find anyway to stay with you and that compel you to say, no, there's something more here that I want to express with music. Right, for sure. If you don't mind, let's jump into the music shop. Sure. You've already described it as a farcical comedy and does strike me very much. And the fact that it was a trilogy, I kept thinking, oh, is this sort of like your Il Tritico of, of Puccini? And certainly this has so many elements like Gianni Schicchi of unexpected things and just madcap events happening right. one on top of each other. I'm very impressed, like I said, that you're both composer and librettist. How do you approach that process? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, and it's partly why so often I wish I had a librettist to work with because sometimes it just would be wonderful to have someone to bounce ideas off or anything. But one thing that being your own librettist helps with is that you're able to control the melody. And that's one thing that is really important to me as a composer is even though it's being written today, that melody is such an important part of lyric theater, I think. Just letting the music take the lead once in a while and the lyrics follow after and having control over that. To be able to go back and forth, I guess it's that old cliched question, what comes first, the words or the music? And it's a question that really has no answer. We all approach it in our own ways. And this is the way I do with a piece like The Music Shop. I was struck the first time I sat down at the piano to work on your score. And if you don't mind my saying, I say this as as a compliment, but the the opening scene with Masha struck me as a little bit Sondheim-esque, who is also one of the great masters of theater who writes both lyrics and music. We produced Sweeney Todd a few years ago, and there's something so natural about the way the text lies over top of the melody. And that's what I find with this score as well. It makes sense to me that you go around singing that melody in your head and then fitting the words, because when the words land there, they just seem like there's no other place for them to belong. And of course, without giving too much away about the opera, you know that opening melody, you know, it might be important to latch on to. Indeed, it might. But I will tell you something. It took me sitting in rehearsal after a few days to just realize, oh my goodness, like, wow, by leaving out one note that it does come back. And this is another thing I would love for you to talk about, because there are so many structural things about this piece that are really quite amazing. I mean, you include a full-out fugue for four voices. There are many ensembles. 
they sound deceptively simple, but they are really quite complex. And it's another thing that I admire about your writing, that there are layers of things going on constantly, which, again, may not be discernible to everybody on first hearing, especially because most things are going on at breakneck speed. But I would love to hear you talk about those kinds of structural things and how they play in your pieces. Well, that brings up some interesting questions, you know, that you just posed there. It's the whole idea of these layers and these ensembles is because it's a musical farce, I think it's really important. Other than the very opening aria of Masha's song, there are really no places, no arias. It's all ensemble. And the music drives the action, and the action plows forward. The whole piece formally is a sort of rondo, that little opening fanfare that you hear. By the end, it becomes kind of a crazy little fanfare that you hear. But between those episodes, like the third movement of many concertos or rondos, between each of those movements, the music has to drive and push forward the action and the drama. So to accommodate that, it is all ensembles. I like to think of an inspiration would be Falstaff, where, I mean, talk about ensembles, that's the most amazing work in terms of the voices matching and fitting together. So that's always been a sort of inspiration for me, that kind of writing. But also the setting itself is a music shop. And from the very outset, I look at that music shop filled with scores and I want it to become a celebration of music, all types of music, unabashedly, just having a great time, you know, with it all. But that was the whole spirit in which the piece was written. Just to step aside from Dimitri and Ivan and Masha and their drama of the day and just to be enjoying the sheer experience of music. I know that one of the things which, again, people hearing it for the first time might miss because it just goes by so quickly. But when Masha is dreaming about what her future might be and who her future suitor might be, as she mentions a symphony conductor, and underneath, you've managed to embed in a different key, but motivically, it's all there. A rather famous piece that I think virtually anybody and everybody in the world would recognize. But you just put it there for a second and then it's gone. And it's those little sprinklings of things. And I know near the end when Yvonne says that he's coming back because there's a whole recital for the Tsar. And then we hear a very famous Russian orchestral piece underneath. Again, for just a couple of seconds, it's things like this that I admire so much. Because again, like we talked about, they're layers. And for anybody just watching the piece and taking it all in, they don't need to know that. But for people who do know and appreciate that, it gives a whole new level of understanding and appreciation, I think. so. Sure. And the whole experience of writing, because you asked about librettos as well as the music, I sort of knew the kind of piece I wanted to write and just tailored the libretto around not only the original story, which is called In a Music Shop, which is really rare and difficult to find, but also including elements from other of his short comic stories. So that if you were to read the original story, there's no Masha in the original story. And basically, it's one of those wonderful monologues, the original In a Music Shop, where this poor fellow is talking about his wife, and you realize he's a typical Chekhovian henpecked husband looking for a particular piece of music in a music shop. But that's where it ends in the Chekhov story. And so what I added other elements, elements from other stories where the one dynamic that is irresistible is when one often prim, proper character is driven totally insane by someone that he interacts with and comes into contact with, and which is the case of this poor Dimitri and this Ivan who just enters the music shop one day. And that's why I emphasize that his little phrase, nothing can bother him today, because 
he's come upon this collection of music. He's just having one of those perfect days. It's almost as if he's tempting fate. Indeed he is, isn't he? And never do that. Never do that. Then Yvonne comes to the door. Yeah, it's quite amazing. And of course, as you mentioned, the role of the wife in this case, I think what makes it also challenging to stage it, because that character only exists in Yvonne's head, right? But she's omnipresent in the piece. And of course, with each incarnation, and of course, she's the one who sets off the fugue, because she's the voice telling Yvonne, as he's trying to remember what the name of the piece was, all of the other things that he had to go and buy. And somehow he can remember the myriad of gifts and items, clothing and jewelry and all of that. But somehow the actual title evades him. But you've made some rather also amazing operatic references to her imposing character. And I won't give that away for our audience, but they'll recognize that instantly when she comes in in a rather menacing way. And that's a lot of fun of the piece, you know, just having sheer delight with the wife. And as an audience member, I hope you're sitting like, what will her next appearance be? When will we see her next? And in what incarnation will she be? That's part of the fun of the piece. When one character appears just through the mind of another character, the possibilities are endless. I saw a show report the day after the filming, and our company manager wrote that Amanda, who is performing the role of the wife, wins the prize for costume changes. So in our staging of this, she actually had 19 quick costume changes in a 45-minute piece. For somebody who's not on stage for all 45 minutes, that amounts to, when you do the math, that's a lot of changes in a very short amount of time. But for a character like the wife, she would have it no other way, you know? Oh, very, very true. And of course, one of the really fun things, which I think makes this also very approachable for opera audiences, is there's quite a bit of quotation. So in the scene, and I, I don't think this is giving too much away, of course, Ivan is beside himself because he cannot remember the title of the piece that he's supposed to purchase. And so Dimitri, the shop owner, and Masha are trying to help him, and they suggest, well, it must be something really famous, so we'll send you some excerpts. And you go through quite a few very well-known operatic excerpts and song excerpts. That also must have been fun because you combine some of them, again, in an ensemble that I never would have imagined possible. Did you, you must have had fun doing that. Oh, I did. I did. Yeah. And it wasn't like I had pieces that I wanted to put together. It was one of those instances where as I wrote it, I let the piece lead to where it was going. And I explored different ways things could fit together. And, you know, there were a lot of approaches you could take. You could have it as something more cacophonous, which could be effective, like all things on top of each other. But in this case, I just wanted it to flow like naturally, like one thing would lead to another. And I think that's part of the fun of it, because you don't know where the road is going to turn and what tune is going to pop up for five seconds. Right. Part of the fun of it. And speaking of which, I mean, when you talk about the flow, again, the piece comes in now at about 45 minutes. But you have literally in your score 20 scenes, some of which are no more. I think the shortest is about 30 seconds and the longest is maybe five minutes or something. But in the score, that's the way it is. It's a through composed work. So for anybody watching and listening, they would have no idea of those kinds of structural points that we have in the score. And sometime I'll have to show you the full orchestra score. Admittedly, it's in my own handwriting. So there are only like three bars to a page. We were actually sent it. I have seen it. And I wish in another time, maybe we'll be able to do the full orchestral version because it's beautifully orchestrated with COVID and everything else. We're doing it obviously with the piano. But also the other thing that impressed me, you must be a pianist because it's a very challenging part, but it's totally playable. There's nothing about it that's impossible, but it really at times sounds like Rachmaninoff or Prokofiev. And again, I like all those Russian things, but are you in fact a pianist? I am not. Really? 
my piano playing is embarrassing. I wish I were better. But when I should have been practicing piano, I was off writing operas and things like that. Don't worry about it. There's enough pianists in the world. (laughs) Well, but it's a wonderful tool to have. You know, when you see the typical audition, like a Broadway show audition, you have these composers like Mari Estin go in there and play piano and his not operatic voice sing through things. I mean, it might not be the most beautiful rendition of something, but he was able to sit there and do it. I'm totally incapable of that kind of thing. And Sometimes I wish I was able to deliver and say, and then it goes like this, but I have to rely upon you and your fine <laughs> cast to do that for me. So I see. Well, I must say I'm genuinely surprised because the part is written so, so well. And again, tricky, but everything is playable and it's very virtuosic. And so I'm really pleased that because we're presenting it with our young artists, that it gives our young artist pianist also a chance to shine. And she really embraced this and from day one was just so on top of this and really enjoying playing it. So I'm sure that will come through, but I look forward to when you'll have a chance to see it and hear it. Oh, yeah. And even though it's being done with piano, I mean, more often than not, that's the way it's heard. That's the way it lives. So I appreciate that and I celebrate that because if it were not for musicians like your pianist taking on the challenge of evoking all of that she needs to do in that piece and having the energy to get through it, the piece would never have had the number of performances it's had. And to be honest, I can't really calculate because the original run, like I say, was just a few performances when it was still a work in progress in Minnesota. But then the following year, when I went to work on Visit to the Country, the second part of the trilogy, Music Shop was taken on tour of the schools. And what I did for that, because some of the schools didn't have pianos and such, we actually hired members of the Miami Symphony to come. And I did a reduced orchestration for six players. And that was put on tape and people perform along to a track. But since then, it's been done many times and more often than not in schools, in communities with piano. So I appreciate your taking it on in that fashion as well. Well, it's been really such a find for us. And I'm so glad that this has given me a chance personally to talk to you and get to know you and your music a little bit more. You've written a lot of operas, and I imagine you were librettist and composer for all of them. Yeah, not by choice, just by default. You know, I want to write this piece. And I've met wonderful colleagues, poets and writers and such, but I've never met that one person to connect with in terms of working with as a librettist. Like I say, I've gotten spoiled in the positive side of controlling both is that ability to go back and forth between the words, between the music. And especially I consider lyric theater needing a certain amount of melody just for my own style. And I'm able to control that a little more as my own librettist. But boy, I wish sometimes I tell you, I wish I had a colleague to bounce ideas off of or to come up with some of the literary ideas as well. But again, by default. Well, in this case, a very, very solid libretto and again, so perfectly married to the music. So it's always great to have somebody to bounce off ideas, but you certainly don't need it. I'm going to, if you don't mind, go back and we can always come back to the music shop. But very curious, what got you into this in the first place? When did you know you wanted to be a composer? And how did you get started on your journey as a musician and as a writer? Well, I think it comes down to just telling stories. I mean, even as a young kid, I was always attracted to the notion of telling a story, but telling it with music. I mean, the first musical I saw at my sister's high school when I was in fifth grade was Oliver. And talk about telling a story with music. And for a kid at that age to see Dickens unveiled through all these wonderful songs and such, I think maybe that was the first time I saw a live theater piece that just really got me hooked. 
first opera I saw, I see, has been a part of your season there, the Mall and the Night Visitors. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I saw that one, a local production here in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I still consider that one of the great 20th century operas. But the sensibility of Minotti, I just found to be very much in tune with the whole idea of telling stories with music. And growing up here in Scranton, Pennsylvania, I had so many benefits here in this working class community, home to our new president, Joe Biden. Just from where I speak here, about a mile, as a matter of fact, the 2400 block of North Washington Avenue has been renamed Joe Biden Way. As a matter of fact, in this area that I live, the adjoining city, Wilkes-Barre, had a terrible flood with the Agnes hurricane. And as a result of that, some government funding came to our towns here, and a youth orchestra was started. And so not only did I play French horn in that youth orchestra, but I had an opportunity to write a piece and have it premiered by the youth orchestra. Our high school had a gifted students after-school program, where I met one of my early mentors, Jeanette Wagner, who was a, a local music teacher who had these wonderful classes where she would delve into Stravinsky and into Carmen, and each chapter of her class had a different musical form or a different avenue to explore. And that was great as a 14, 15-year-old to have that exposure. And as I said earlier, the whole impetus for the trilogy was just the opportunity to hear things. Well, all throughout high school, I had an opportunity to hear the music I was writing and wanting to write at the time. Probably the biggest event for me was as a senior in high school, my first big theatrical piece was a musical version of The Devil and Daniel Webster. Oh, wow. And luckily, we had a six-week teacher's strike. So I was able to write that. And I was in the kind of high school where other schools were doing My Fair Lady and Fiddler on the Roof. Our school said, write the musical. So I was able to, especially because of the teacher's strike, finish the musical. And it was done my senior year of high school. And the kind of thing that I actually got requested to have it performed elsewhere, except a lesson early as a young composer, you have to get the rights before you can take Stephen Vincent Benet and turn him into a musical. So I found that out the hard way. But again, a wonderful learning experience for someone 17, 18 years old. And in a way, that experience of writing the words, music, orchestration, everything for a musical that was produced in high school, it fortified me to enter college. And I should say, you know, here in Scranton, that part of, again, coming from a small working class town, you have things like the Beelin family here. One of the local families had a scholarship, which I got twice and it afforded my first year at the Eastman School of Music. So again, opportunities that come in a small working class town like this that I was really fortunate to take advantage of and to have available to me. So I entered four years at the Eastman School, and the senior year there, the director, Richard Perlman, said, you know, we'll produce your opera here. And again, I had a wonderful opportunity where my Hawthorne-inspired opera was performed. Now, a lesson I learned there is As much as I like to write melodies, they have to be theatrically motivated. So it's a score that won't be presented again, but it was a great opportunity composing it. And then after that, I didn't do graduate work simply because I knew what I wanted to write and at the time didn't necessarily find the atmosphere in conservatories to write that style of music. Today is much different, and I would have probably pursued postgraduate work. I've had wonderful mentors and teachers through the years, but my biggest mentor and person who showed the most support through my early years as a composer was Robert Ward, 
My one regret is that I wasn't aware of where he taught. And I knew the Crucible, of course, one of the works that I grew up with, really loving, but I didn't actually study with him. He's such a wonderful person, wonderful composer and mentor and supporter. I always appreciate that as well. And so my opportunity, though, not doing graduate work, I went to work right away for the Northeast Pennsylvania Philharmonic, the same orchestra that had the youth orchestra. But in this case, I was working as production assistant. And that opera that I wrote at Eastman opened up a door for me to write an orchestra piece for them. Thomas Mahalik, who sadly has since passed away, Polish-born conductor, very imposing, brilliant musician. And I learned so much just watching him conduct and rehearse. But one day, after hearing some of my opera that I had written at Eastman, I was in doing underling work, my gopher job at the orchestra. He came into the office and said, you will write the overture. And it was an opportunity to start the next season with an overture for full orchestra. And that followed shortly thereafter. Hugh Wolf commissioned a piece for the Pennsylvania Tricentennial that was done on Pennsylvania Public TV. So again, in my early 20s, I had these wonderful opportunities as a composer. But that gets to the point of the trilogy. I realize I want to write for the stage. And where, as a young composer, are you going to find those opportunities? Which made me take the root of these three short operas, each a different style of opera in a way, but all for limited forces, four singers each, to be done with piano, with reduced orchestration, or with orchestra. So those were the parameters I set up in approaching the trilogy. And it was a very rewarding experience undertaking these three pieces and writing them. And actually, our mutual friend and colleague, David Agler, the conductor, who was actually the person who hired me at Vancouver Opera, he was music director here in the 90s, gave me my first job. And then, of course, he spent 15 years at the Wexford Opera Festival. And I know that he brought you out. Yeah, twice. For the short work series, yes. one season they did winners, and then a couple of years later, they did losers. And that was just like a dream come true for me as a part Irish composer. But I also find so much inspiration in the Irish writers. In the case of Brian Friel, who I mentioned earlier, I saw a play of his when I was in high school, got motivated to write a letter to him. He invited me to his home in the very tip of Ireland, in Donegal. I went up and took the Swilly bus up to the north of Ireland and played him an aria that I was working on, uh, Sleep Mag, from my opera Winners, and had a wonderful meeting with him. It was interesting, as I went up in this famous playwright, I was very intimidated going to meet with him. And I traveled up, like I said, to the very tip of Ireland, to the Inishowen Peninsula, and knocked on the door. And his wife had prepared this lovely silver carafe of coffee for this yank who was coming to visit. And I was so embarrassed because I've just never tried coffee. To this day, I've never tried a cup of coffee. And here I was trying to make a good impression on the famous playwright, Brian Farrell. So he drank the coffee. His wife went into brew a pot of tea. And we got along famously for the rest of our meeting. Wow. Okay. You know, there's always, in every interview, usually something that somebody says that blows my mind. But of all the amazing things you've said now, this one blew my mind, that you have never tried a cup of coffee. No, no, because I don't need that. I'm a compulsive personality. If I smoked, I would be a chain smoker. As it is, I'm addicted to tea, especially you know, hot tea, cold tea, but especially iced tea. So if I had coffee, can you imagine the levels of caffeine? I don't know how I'd survive. So I've just avoided it because, yeah, the tea does me fine. As somebody who not lives on coffee, but it's definitely a regular part of my diet. I would be helpless, I'd tell you, believe me. Wow. Yes. <laughs> But David Agler, I really appreciate his inviting me to Wexford because 
we have dreams that we aspire to, and that was one of them, to be part of the Wexford Festival. Such an honor to be there. Yeah, what an amazing place. And part of it, you know, while I was there, although it was also during a previous visit, I also had a chance to contact with another Irish writer, John B. Keane, and I have a couple of projects that I'm working on now based on his works. Again, I have partly Irish heritage, but there's something about the Irish writers and the Irish sensibility that really attracts me to Irish literature and Irish story. Again, back to that whole thing about storytelling. The Irish storyteller is clear-eyed. You can have the most tragic thing, the most comic thing, the most outrageous plot of a story, but it's all told very clear-eyed, without any cynicism or sarcasm. And that's why I feel attracted to Chekhov and attracted to Friel and Keen is because they are storytellers that don't have this kind of cynicism about them. And I don't know how, as a composer, personally, I'm speaking just for me, how one could create music if there is sarcasm. I think there needs to be a joy and an honesty and almost like an innocence in the storytelling of being able to convey something and pair it with music. Again, this is my approach, but that's why these stories and these themes have always attracted me to them. I see. Well, certainly that sort of joie de vivre and the energy is all over the music. I mean, it's so contagious and that I would say comes across very clearly. I'd like to ask you right now, how has the pandemic affected your work as a creator and an artist? Well, that's really an interesting question because when things started to look bleak in the spring of 2020, the composer side of me was thinking, I can go back to my John B. Keen opera and really make some progress on it. But the artistic director side of me, as artistic director of the Semper Opera Museum in Bolton Landing on Lake George, in that position, I had a responsibility, the same responsibility that you've experienced with Vancouver Opera, that you have a series all planned and all ready to go. And in short order, you have to reimagine it for this COVID-19 experience. And let me back up. But another one of my mentors was the famous American tenor, David Lloyd. And later in life, he was director of Juilliard Opera. He helped found the Lake George Opera Festival. And he knew through Dorothy Danner, the director who I've worked with all these years, that I like to go squirrel away at places like the McDowell Colony, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, places that as a composer, I could go and have time and space and quiet in a natural surrounding to compose. And in 1990, right around the same time as I was working on a Chekhov trilogy, I was given an opportunity to come to the Semper Opera Museum on Lake George. David Lloyd invited me to serve as artistic director there. Ever since that time, I've been working on hand at the Semper Opera Museum for many years as the curator and in the last dozen years as the artistic director. And so it's just, again, one of those opportunities just came my way. A lot of my orchestration, for instance, a music shop, was done my first year at the studio there. And all little snippets of melodies and subsequent works were dreamed up in this beautiful setting on Lake George. So to get back to the pandemic and COVID-19, our 2020 season was 20 slash 20 musical visionaries. And we had planned 20 to 25 events, films, lectures, concerts, and all of them had to be reimagined. And in this case, it was a nine-part virtual online series that just the whole process of writing was seven days a week work. And again, as I'm sure you're experiencing there, that suddenly we're all doing our job twice over, it seems. And with the future still not clear what's happening this summer, 
we're still going forward in the hopes that performance and live performance will return, but always aware to be on our toes if we have to make any quick moves and reinvent ourselves once again for another year. So it's been a challenge, but an adventure. Why don't we say an adventure? Yeah, that's a very positive way of looking at it. It's true. I think the term of 2020 is pivot. I don't know how many times I heard that verb, but everybody talking about how they had to pivot this way or this way with the organization, as you say, you know, because you're going down one course. And it certainly has created a lot of challenges, but opportunities as well. Yeah. And I guess in your various hats that you wear, obviously having curated and being an artistic director, you are very much in the thick of it of reinventing the wheel, right? At least temporarily for all of the things that you produce. And may I ask, are you working on a new piece right now? Do you have a few in the fire or kind of thing? I have a few. I have two choral works that I'm oh. working on now. And I also have an opportunity, again, like reinventing things for our own series, which is upcoming. There's a program. I don't think I'm giving too much away because we haven't announced our season. And we're, again, the uncertainty, but there's a soprano coming to do a program called Songs to the Moon. And I was racking my brain trying to think of arias and things to suggest for this program. And I realized that the whole final scene of it is called Moonrise, and that maybe I should arrange it for the performers that we have for this event. So things like that. I have another work that I may be writing for a couple of the musicians that are coming. And then always in the background, and I need to make it the foreground, is my opera called Sharon's Grave that I had an opportunity several years ago to see parts of with the Seagull Festival, formerly the Seagull Music Colony in Scroon Lake. And I look forward to a time when I could really concentrate and get that written. But as you can imagine, for something like the music shop or any of the operas, it takes undivided attention for a particular stretch of time. And I'm looking for that time that I may have to do that sometime. But I'm always looking forward to getting back to work on the opera because that's the thing that motivates me the most, writing theatrical music back to that whole idea of storytelling through music. Right. And it's true that in the pandemic, there will sure be a whole bunch of new stories to be able to share people's experiences of even this past year of what they've gone through, which leads me to my last question. How do you see the future of opera and that kind of music theater and theater in general post-pandemic? Well, I mean, getting to what you're talking about now, like this whole last reinventing, and here we are talking on this incredible thing called Zoom, and I'm technically 19th century. I don't even have a smartphone yet, I'm embarrassed to say. Oh, wow. No, never change. I love it. I only know two people. But here you are, and I don't know what your audience will see, but we're in little squares, and we're talking about ensembles and something like the music shop where here are all these little squares. I mean, what wonderful opportunities there can be there in an ensemble opera. It's a whole new medium. And I'm hoping that I can find a story to tell that might be told in little squares like that, that can overlap and, you know, love letters back and forth and yeah. duets and duels and ensembles and quintets and octets. And you can just picture it on this wonderful medium. That's the plus side. And admittedly, the realistic side is that there's really no substitute for the visceral energy and excitement of a live performance. And as I think about it, I mean, that was the thing that inspired me as a kid to want to write music and theater. So I really look forward to a time when we could get back to live performances. And I don't know that there's a substitute for that. I couldn't agree with you more. And I must say that has been an ongoing 
theme with the guests of this program. We all feel that same way. I mean, how can we not? It's that thrill of live communal storytelling, of sharing music, of making music and sharing stories in a big way. There's no substitute for that, really. But the fact is that if it weren't for our current circumstances and you're looking for virtual or online appropriate operas, we wouldn't have met here today. So I do appreciate your reaching out, finding Music Shop and presenting it to your audience, taking the time and effort and putting all that you have into the work. It's very humbling and flattering to me. So I thank you for that. Right back at you. I was online a lot over the summer searching pieces and your piece kept coming up and I thought, well, I need to get my hands on this. I'm just so grateful that we did go down that road. And I have nothing but admiration for your work. We're very lucky to have made this discovery. I hope that in the future, more companies will embrace your pieces. I know that this work in particular has been done a lot. It's just really first-class music theater and opera. My biggest hope is that you're going to like what we did with the piece. Everybody threw themselves into this 100% from day one. And our stage director, Dana Fratkin, had some really great ideas. Again, bearing in mind that with COVID protocols and restrictions, everybody had to be three meters away from each other. We rehearsed in the room with everyone masked until the dress rehearsal. So, you know, for singers, that's really tough to be singing with masks on, but we did get special permission. We had a safety protocol person in the room at all times to make sure that everything was being adhered to. There's so many props in your piece, so nobody could touch the same prop unless they were wearing gloves, and then they had to sanitize their hands every five minutes. The whole thing was just like, we could create a really interesting documentary about just the behind the scenes for putting this together. And of course, there's a fight scene, which we recreated about three meters apart. And one of our stage managers at the opera, who was also a qualified fight director who helped out with that. Anyway, there was so many interesting behind the scenes parts of this, which I hope will translate well into the whole. I'm so grateful that we have had this chance to talk. Thank you so much for your generosity in taking the time to speak with me. And I hope actually we can continue this relationship beyond because it's really been such a pleasure. It would be a true delight. Pleasure to meet and talk to you all. Thank you so much. And thank you to you and to everyone at Vancouver Opera for your hospitality and welcoming of Music Shop into your repertoire. Richard, all the very best down in Scranton. And from the north here, I can't tell you how happy we are that someone from your hometown is now occupying the White House. I'll go and send your regards to our newly named Joe Biden way about a mile from here. Awesome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Don't forget to subscribe to Vancouver Opera's Digital Season to see the music shop at digital.vancouveropera.ca on Saturday, March 13th. Our guest for our next episode is stage director Brenna Corner, who has worked as a director, actor, singer, choreographer, and fight director across Canada, the United States, and Europe. Brenna has been a member of the Yolanda M. Ferris Young Artist Program with Vancouver Opera and directed VO productions of Hansel and Gretel, L'Elysir d'Amore, and will return to direct our upcoming digital production of La Tragédie de Carmen. We'd love to hear from you if you have any feedback or suggestions for upcoming guests. You can reach us via email at online at vancouveropera.ca, and don't forget to check out this episode's special features on our website at vancouveropera.ca forward slash offstage. This has been Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla. As always, you can keep up to date with Vancouver Opera at vancouveropera.ca, where you can sign up for our e-newsletter or follow us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.